This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. So before we dive into today's episode, which we recorded a, a few days ago, there's breaking news that I want to touch on real quick. This episode, you'll hear I talk with Jason Luzak and Nicole Masnica about a homicide trial occurring as we speak in Dane County, Wisconsin. In the episode, we'll get into the details of the facts, but late yesterday, the defendant tested positive for COVID. The jury is being informed this morning, today's the 12th, uh, and the trial is postponed until at least next Tuesday, the 18th. I've got one of the guests of today's episode, Jason Luzak, here with me. Jason, this is kind of a wild twist. What's your take on what's happening? Yeah, it's very uh, surprising in a way, but also kind of par for the course in this era of trying cases in uh, COVID uh, era in the pandemic. Um, I think it presents a lot of, I mean, if you were following the case last few days, there's been a lot of really damaging evidence for the defense. And my biggest concern would be that the jurors are going to go home and have these next this week or whatever it's going to be um, to think about it. Um, but we we do address some of those things in the episode um, that you'll hear coming up. But um, it's it's an interesting twist. Definitely. Are you what's your thoughts on the fact that it's postponed rather than a mistrial because the judge could have easily ordered a mistrial. Yeah, I think that if I were the defense, I would ask for a mistrial because I just think that um, having jurors listen to the state's case and then go home and ruminate on it and think about it. And there were some really gruesome things that they saw the last couple of days. It's really a horrible spot to stop the case. But ultimately, I'm sure that they're consulting with their client and trying to decide what is best. And there really is no right or wrong answer um, here. Um, and maybe they feel good about the jurors that they have and they don't want to miss an opportunity, you know. But yeah, I mean, a, a trial that was scheduled to go three weeks is now going to go even longer. So, right. And kind of my last question on this topic is do you think the jury is going to hold it against him that now they have to again rearrange their schedules? I mean, jurors know what they're getting into at the start of a trial, but with something like this, it's another week taken out of their lives. Yeah, I think that it's, um, you know, being a juror is really a thankless job. And mm -hmm. I think that this makes it even more difficult. And they're, they may even be concerned about, you know, having exposure because if, um, you know, if he was symptomatic or even asymptomatic, um, that some jurors may not feel comfortable being in the same room. Uh, with him or the others who are obviously in close contact with him. So um, I know that they are taking precautions um, yeah, as it relates in the, in the courtroom. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of mitigates it. Um, but, you know, this uh, seems to be spreading like wildfire right now and is affecting, you know, trials in a way that a lot of people aren't used to dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see what ends up happening and will continue to add updates through other episodes as this trial progresses but that's our that's our update for today and we'll get back to the regularly scheduled programming
welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today, we are here with returning guests, Jason Luzak, and first-time guest, Nicole Masnica, both prolific and talented criminal defense attorneys at our office. And we're going to do something a little different from our, our normal format, and we're going to look at a case that's happening or that's on trial right now as we speak in Wisconsin. Just so we have this disclaimer out there where we have not seen everything to do with this case. We haven't seen the discovery. We don't know what talks have happened between the defendant and his attorneys. We don't know what negotiations have occurred. We're just commenting on what's been publicly available. And that's what our opinions are, are based off of. Today, we're talking about State versus Chandler Halderson, an Eagle Scout from Dane County, Wisconsin, and son of Bart and Krista, who were last seen alive on July 1st, 2021. Um, and the first take that I want you guys to, to weigh in on is, on July 7th, Chandler reports his parents missing and says that he last saw them on July 2nd. What does that discrepancy say between when other people saw them alive versus when he says he saw them alive versus when he reported them missing? So obviously in um, a murder case like this, and really any case, the timeline is usually really, really important mm -hmm. um, because it, it really matters about the credibility of what people are saying and can you believe them? And so from a law enforcement standpoint, I mean, we see it. Uh, very early on, they try to establish um, in, in a case like this, what, um, when things happened and what happened and kind of their theory on the timeline. And if things don't make sense or add up, then you've got problems uh, if you are the one being accused of a crime. And so I think establishing the cover-up and mm -hmm. in the opening statement, the prosecution was very particular about narrowing down a two hour period of when this alleged murder occurred. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're going to fit everything in that occurred after that. Um, so actually, this case is kind of interesting in that way where um, usually the lead up to a crime like this is what's really focused on. But it seems like the prosecution is really focusing on all the things that happened, essentially mm -hmm. the cover up, um, yeah. which is really powerful evidence. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a tough case for um, the defense, at least from what we've seen right now. Yeah, and I guess we'll jump ahead and, and spoiler alert, he was charged with the, the deaths of his parents. He's facing eight counts total, two first degree intentional homicide, two false information on kidnapped and missing persons, two counts mutilating a corpse, and two counts of hiding a corpse. Nicole, you've got lots of experience dealing with uh hiding corpses hiding, not hiding corpses but <laughs> no, dealing with cases that. that have pretty severe charges what are these charges for a defendant what does this mean what what is he looking at here well i mean he's looking at certainly more than a lifetime in prison i mean the charges just related to the homicide itself uh, the maximum possible penalty is life without the possibility of parole and i think when you see you know charges like this you know you're talking about you know four charges each for the death of you know each one of his parents for the mother and the father um the da you know can sort of win without necessarily getting a conviction on the the first degree intentional homicide if they're, mm -hmm. if they're not able to convince the jury that beyond a reasonable doubt he caused the death um but 
you know, they do that often when they have a strong case as well, you know, because they know that they're going to get convictions on basically everything. I mean, it protects them from an appellate standpoint because, you know, it protects, um, it guarantees basically a long sentence on multiple different convictions. Um, but, you know, it's certainly not a good thing to be facing this many counts. I mean, obviously he's innocent until proven guilty, mm -hmm. but the state, you know, did a lot of um, investigation. And I think that, you know, Mr. Halderson certainly put himself in a precarious position by all of his conduct kind of after the situation and, and talking to police and, mm -hmm. and sort of the behavior that he engaged in afterwards made him very much look um, like the likely suspect here. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that conduct, because it's not just that the timeline is a little wonky. First of all, he told police that his parents went up to their family cabin with an unknown couple. Mm -hmm. That to me kind of stands out as a, a red flag. Yeah, it appears this was a very close family that yeah. he was living in the family home. Um, so it seems odd that he wouldn't have known the couple. And I think he had also said that they like left with a lot of a large amount of alcohol and a lot of cash, which <laughs> seems like odd, but, you know, mm -hmm. and that I know that the prosecution has been calling witnesses, um, including another son of theirs who, attest who yeah. testified this week that they, you know, really weren't big drinkers. They weren't gamblers. This mm -hmm. was sort of very unusual um, conduct. And they had a lot of close friends and, and none of those people were the ones that they had traveled with. Um, and that was, you know, Chandler's brother testifying about that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's certainly suspicious. And the fact that, I mean, the fact that he's the one who reported him missing to begin with, I mean, that's going to really draw their attention, I think, on him, you know, since he's yeah. the last one who supposedly saw them. Um, and then he's the one who ultimately reports them missing as well. So let's talk about then after he reports them missing, he talks with local news stations. Never a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> never, never a good idea. Um, but he basically is seen by a reporter in his neighborhood going door to door asking neighbors to see their ring cameras or their security cameras. Um, and he tells them that he wanted to catch a glimpse of his of his parents. I'm assuming that he portrayed it as I want to see like their last moments that we have on tape. Um, Jason, how how believable is that that he was just innocently trying to see an image of his parents? Well, it's it's really difficult because whenever we handle you know, serious cases, you always want to, and the, and the prosecution is always going to um, kind of look at behaviors that occur after a tragedy mm -hmm. and, and everybody reacts differently to tragedy. And so, you know, one of the things that you have to, as a defense lawyer, when you're handling a case like this is get the jury to understand that, you know, some people may react to grief in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, do I think the jury is probably going to put a lot of weight in that evidence? Yeah, um, because it is odd behavior. But it's always difficult for us because, you know, we've seen how people react to tragic situations and everyone reacts differently. Um, and it's really easy to second guess, you know, after the fact and say, well, I think somebody should react this way. Right. Um, so, yeah. Do I think it's going to matter? Yeah. Should it matter that much? I mean, it depends on how the evidence is presented and what exactly he said, but I think the jury will, will really put a lot of weight into that kind of conduct. Does it change your answer that his brother apparently testified that he was the one who suggested to Chandler to go door to door? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, you're basically fighting an uphill battle um, 
in the defense case here because everything that he did after the murder is going to be under a microscope. And so it's, it's really difficult probably to explain away some of those behaviors, but that sounds like a good explanation. Um, you know, also you, you want to be careful in, you know, and there was no Denny motion, which is a motion blaming someone else for, um, you know, for the murder, which you have to have some amount of evidence that someone else was involved. Um, so I assume that, you know, based on that not occurring, that there's really no other evidence of other suspects. Um, but certainly, I think that this case would be better from the defense if they could point the finger at someone else, mm -hmm. um, because they're going to say, well, these people are obviously dead, and they were dismembered. And so how did that happen? You know? Yeah. Nicole, you had mentioned the defense's opening statement, um, and something was said in it along the lines of, you know, at the end, we might concede that he committed some crimes, but not the murders. What are your thoughts on that kind of statement? I mean, sometimes that that's, I mean, really the best you're going to get in something that you really have to acknowledge and, you know, taking ownership of your conduct that can clearly be proved is, mm -hmm. you know, often a strategy that, you know, a defense might use. Um, you know, we'll have to really see how things shake out. We don't know if Chandler will testify mm -hmm. um, and what he'll say or, you know, what he'll say about his conduct, you know, after, um, after the incident. I mean, it's really, you know, sort of a, a guessing game at this point. He might come forward with a story you know that explains all of this mm -hmm. um, and we really do have to be careful I mean the moment you're charged with a first degree intentional homicide everybody's going to be pointing to every bit of your behavior and saying see see that's you know right. evidence that he did it you know when that could be easily explainable by something else and that's really the battle of a defense to to show that stuff mm -hmm. um but yeah I mean I think that you know they probably know that there are certain pieces of evidence that they're not going to be able to overcome and it right. gives more legitimate legitimacy to their defense um to say yeah maybe he lied to police or provided mm -hmm. you know and I don't know that's not I'm not saying he did but maybe you know that's one of the, the allegations you know that maybe he did this or maybe he did that you know in the aftermath because he was scared or because mm -hmm. he didn't know what to do or because he felt culpable in his own way for you know there's allegations that he had lied about certain aspects of his life to his parents and his job and his school um you know maybe trying to explain that he did do those things but that he certainly didn't kill his parents mm -hmm. I mean that could vary that seems like that is going to be the tactic of the defense yeah and there could also be I mean there's also um, the issue that a first degree intentional homicide has certain elements to it mm -hmm. and they could be, you know, maybe, um, the deaths were, um, something that was not intentional, um, yeah. you know, and something that maybe there's a, a different side to this story. Um, but when you lay something out like that in opening, um, you've really, you've got to come through with something, mm -hmm. you know, to provide some sort of explanation. Um, because it, it, it all comes down to the credibility, not only of, you know, the, the defense theory, but also the lawyers involved. And so, you know, ultimately, I think you can take that as a tell that there's going to be some admission that, mm -hmm. you know, some crime was committed. So one of the things that really stands out to me that at first blush makes me think that maybe someone else was also involved is that the father's remains were found on Chandler's girlfriend's property, um, which, you know, it's, it's a whole other animal in and of itself. 
the mother's remains were found in a town called Roxbury, which is about 40 minute drive from where the father's remains were found. They were found weeks apart, but you know, I haven't seen anything about when, if they can tell when they were buried or when they were killed. Um, and I also haven't seen anything that shows a connection between Chandler and Roxbury. Um, is, is it possible that maybe the defense has evidence that there was a second person and not necessarily blaming them like a Denny motion, um, but maybe there was someone else I, I involved? Think you really run the risk of not disclosing that um, mm -hmm. because the judge could not allow that type of evidence in um, because certainly um, you're shifting blame to someone else and right. really it's um, it, it would likely be something that it's, it's it would be a very uh, risky tactic but mm -hmm. it may it could be something that's at play but um, you know my my thought in seeing the openings is that this is a case where they're going to argue reasonable doubt and and really hammer on reasonable doubt, which mm -hmm. in a murder case, you know, let's say Chandler does not testify. Um, all you're left with is not evidence of how it actually occurred. I mean, there's, there's evidence of the aftermath mm -hmm. and there's probably theories about it, but no one is going to be an eyewitness, you know, to, to explain what happened and what occurred. Right. And so that is, you know, somewhat of a hole, but that's a hole in every case where, you know, there's three people there, mm -hmm. um, assuming that the prosecution theory is that he did it, which it is, um, he's the only one who would have been an eyewitness to it. So right. that creates an issue. Um, and that could be what the defense has. Mm -hmm. That could be all they have um, to argue. Yeah. And I think with the, in the introduction and the talking about that they had like a lot of money, maybe they're mm -hmm. going to go somewhere, you know, that they left with a lot of money, a lot of cash, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, with a couple that was unknown to the family, I mean, they may be trying to establish that maybe the, this couple was, you know, into some sort of illicit things themselves um, and possibly that maybe Chandler could have been set up or, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. It is odd that the bodies are in two different locations yeah. because, it seems like if you did something in the heat of the moment or because, you know, this, the prosecution's case is that, you know, Chandler had lied about getting jobs and had lied about schooling, mm -hmm. which, you know, is bizarre, but seems like, you know, your dad finding out about that when you're in your twenties is not exactly like a life or death situation, right. you know, where, where that makes sense is really a motivation unless there's something else really going on there. But, um, you know, it, it seems like an odd attack to take to obviously, you know, do this to both parents, but if you did this in the heat of the moment, it seems, you know, difficult or bizarre to believe that you would then like concoct a, a very complicated situation where you put one body, one place, but not in any mm -hmm. sort of concealed location in the, in, in the property of someone, you know, and then another body in another completely different place that's found, you know, afterwards, um, you know, that, that there's these issues going on and that there's, you know, sort of these, you know, complicated pieces of the puzzle that really seem like this would have been almost more of like a plan thing rather than just like a heat of the moment killing like the, right. the state is talking about. Um, so there's certainly those elements there that just seem odd and don't mm -hmm. really make sense if you just, you know, you shot somebody because you were afraid they were going to find out some lies about you and you were, you know, you were scared or whatever. Right. 
Um, it seems like much more calculated, at least um, if they're saying that this is all a big cover up after the fact mm -hmm. and his behavior is all just pretend and fake. It's a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of calculation and sort of forethought that would um, that would go into doing some of these things. Yeah. And I know that one of their family friends testified that after the deaths happened, Chandler asked her something like, do you think I should post about their deaths on social media? Um, which obviously can be interpreted as a totally innocent question of a kid trying to deal with his parents dead, um, but kind of goes along with what you're saying that they can't have it both ways of him being calculated, but then also spur of the moment. Cause if he hadn't thought this through beforehand, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there's just so much conflicting evidence of what his thought was at the time, mm -hmm. if he did this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that may be, I mean, that goes back to kind of what we were talking about with the defense saying that conceding or saying that you may see that he committed some mm -hmm. crimes um, because they may be trying to really thread the needle here of saying, you know, maybe he was responsible for the death or mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't, um, but that you can't really put much stock in the things if he's panicked and then concocts this way to try right. to cover things up. Um, you know, it, but it's powerful evidence for the prosecution that you have such a calculated, mm -hmm. um, you know, sending the text messages, I, you yep. know, the, the mother's phone. You want to explain text that? Messages. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so they did find the parents' phones um, mm -hmm. at in the residence that Chandler was at, which obviously indicates that, you know, the parents likely did not leave to go up north without their phones and right. then their phones are her phone uh mother's phone was sending a text message um after mm -hmm. which really you know yeah. shows that there was some amount of planning or attempt to cover something mm -hmm. up um, and i think that's a very damning piece of evidence um that's yeah. probably if I were to rank the pieces of evidence, that's a really bad one. And it was yeah. hidden in the home too when they found it. Yeah, they were hidden in shoes or something yeah. like that, which yeah. is not a place you'd leave them if you were just leaving in a hurry. I, I wouldn't think so. I don't keep my phone in my shoe. <laughs> it makes no sense, yeah. What about the fact that during their investigation, they found out that, I think they called him an internet friend of Chandler's, bought him a gun in the middle of June and uh, the casings match what would have come out of that gun. The casings found in the Henderson home. Yeah, that's so great. yeah, that's not a good fact either. Um, and, you know, that's why I would not be surprised if as this trial, you know, uh, goes out that they're going to try to go for what's called a lesser included offense, um, which matters for the penalties because a first degree intentional homicide is a life sentence. Um, and so you know, they may be trying to um, present some evidence and then ask the judge before the case goes to the jury to have lesser included, which basically means um, offenses that are less serious, but are basically kind of in the same vein of the, um, you know, the homicide charge. Mm -hmm. So, so let's switch gears a little bit. Like with any trial, there was a bunch of pretrial filings, you know, we're not going to go into the nitty gritty of each one, but one that I found interesting is that the defense wanted the media to be barred from live streaming the events of what's happened in the courtroom. Nicole, what do you think about that in conjunction with, you know, the fact that 
COVID's coming back now and there's the right for the public to see what's going on inside a courtroom. What are your thoughts on them trying to ban live streaming? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely understand the concern in that. This is a case where there are many, many witnesses. This is a week plus long trial. Mm -hmm. I mean, the possibility of witnesses being tainted by the testimony of others is very real. Um, you know, certainly, you know, everybody has the right to a public trial. And I know, obviously, the defense is not, you know, trying to stop that. I mean, mm -hmm. they want that to happen. They don't want this to happen behind closed doors. But I think what they're getting at is that they don't want, um, you know, potential jurors to be tainted. They don't want to any potential witnesses to be listening in to sort of align their stories with with that of another i mean that is very a very real risk when you have um the, the ability to sort of see what's going on in a trial unmonitored on your computer screen at home i mean there's nothing to prevent a jury a juror's spouse or a child from watching this um and talking to them about it and saying well i actually saw this or i saw you know these rulings that were going on outside of the presence of the jury mm -hmm. um you know there there's a lot of risk there you know when you put something out publicly and that the court's not able to monitor it when you're talking about just you know the public a public trial itself you know you're in a room you're in an enclosed space and the judge is able to see who's going in and out you see if there's a witness that's going to be there um, and you'd see, you know, everybody who's able to hear and everybody who's able to see um, the, you know, the facts of the case and sort of some of the other things that are going on outside mm -hmm. of the presence of the jury. So there's a lot more control if you don't have it um, live on television um, or online for everybody to see um, when you can't monitor that at all. So I certainly understand that. And I think that was a, a good move for them to try mm -hmm. to do that. And ultimately, the court is allowing live streaming only when the jury is present um, and everything else it can still be videoed and just not live stream which i don't know how much that mitigates those concerns mm -hmm. um, but that's what the the court ended up doing so this case is it's scheduled to go through the end of the month which who knows if it really will probably not but who knows um, so it's unlikely there will be results by the time this podcast comes out but i think we should have some fun and make some predictions as to what could happen. Again, these are definitely not legal opinions at this point because yeah, we don't know what's going on, but uh, I would say more of, more of guesses than anything else. So let's, first I wanna ask you guys, if you are in the role of the defense attorney, what would be your best piece of evidence that you're hiding in your back pocket? So it can't be a Denny motion um, or anything to do with blaming someone else, but what's something that if you were the defense attorney in this case, you would just love to have in your back pocket to spring on, on the uh, state? <laughs> well, I, I think it would be Chandler's testimony. Okay. I mean, if he has a way of explaining all of these pieces that appear um, to be bad for him, then you may have a chance, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't know, you know, it's always a calculated um, risk of having your client testify. And it's not even necessarily because you're concerned that, you know, they're going to harm their own case. It's just simply because there, there's always a risk of the DA or mm -hmm. them being nervous or looking bad um, or not being able to explain something mm -hmm. in a way that it satisfies a jury. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that if, if he's prepared to testify, I think mm -hmm. that's probably they're going to be their best piece of evidence. Do we think he's going to testify? If you had to choose. 
I think he has to. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's going to have to explain his conduct. Yeah. yeah. Be, and, and I think that it's somewhat of a tell that the, you know, the, the, the defense attorney in this case is very experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think that she probably chose her words very wisely and mm -hmm. strategically. Um, and so my guess it would be that there's probably some explanation um, that would go for probably a lesser included offense. And that may be where they're trying to go with it. Yeah, one of the options is, you know, second degree, you know, mm -hmm. intentional homicide, which could be imperfect self-defense. It could be believing that you need to defend yourself, but mm -hmm. really that that's not reasonable. It could be, you know, adequate provocation. Mm -hmm. or it could be all different um, sorts of issues there. Or even if it was a reckless homicide, it's like you pulled a gun on him and then it accidentally went off. But all those things, like Jason said, have to come really through the defendant um, who has not, you know, really at least, you know, he certainly isn't admitted to the conduct or anything like that, but we'll really have to see. And, and really that's, I mean, the best position you can be in as a defendant is to tell your story for the first time at mm -hmm. trial. So, I mean, that's sort of the moral of the story here. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't make a statement to police. Always ask for a lawyer to be present. Yes, definitely always ask for a lawyer to be present. Um, and I think one thing that's really important for people that maybe aren't involved in the legal system to understand is that when you're on the defense side, a win isn't necessarily always a not guilty. A win could be a lesser included. Mm -hmm. A win could be guilty on some and not on the others. It doesn't Absolutely. necessarily mean a clean sweep I mean, of everything. Because the prosecution might not understand your role in a crime or not, mm -hmm. might not understand what you did. You might be, you might have done one thing wrong or you might have helped somebody else out or done something with some certain motivation. Um, but they're going to, you know, do whatever they can to sort of, you know, seek the highest possible penalty or the most serious charges. Or if they, if they just believe something happened that didn't, um, you know, they're going to pursue that against you. I mean, um, so that's something you always want to think about protecting yourself, you know, even from the outset, even if you're, I mean, absolutely innocent, they will take things that you say um, and use it to, to sort of explain conduct, just like you see in this case. I mean, some of this behavior might have been completely normal. You see, mm -hmm. Like Bree mentioned, the, the going door to door, you know, talking to different people asking to see what, you know, people saw on their ring cameras. Well, yeah, that absolutely looks suspicious. But then when you hear that his brother, who clearly wasn't involved, suggested that, right. I mean, that puts it in a different light, but that doesn't take away the suspicion, um, you know, of that. So, I mean, even innocent conduct and, you know, an innocent explanation can be twisted around. Mm -hmm. So that's why you know, we always, you know, recommend you certainly do not speak to a, a, a police officer, the news media, yeah. or anyone else, um, you know, absolutely not without talking to an attorney without them being present. So last question, and I know that this is assuming many, many things, but if he's convicted of everything, what, what does he get? Oh, well, it'll be life in prison. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, one of the things that occurs after a jury verdict, if let's say he is convicted on all counts, mm -hmm. um, the judge at sentencing will no longer have any doubt about right. what occurred. So um, the judge, if you believe the prosecution's uh, version, which if he's guilty on all counts, that's basically what the jury is doing. Right. It is a very aggravated crime. Um, and it's one that the judge doesn't have any discretion on, but yeah. I would not be surprised if the judge makes statements about, um, 
the the planning mm -hmm. and the amount of uh, thought that would have had to go into something like this. And the amount of lies. I mean, I think too, I mean, the judges then have to talk about or decide whether there is parole eligibility mm -hmm. or the possibility of release and extended supervision. Um, but when I, like Jason said, I mean, it's, it's such a serious crime. And if it is something where, you know, you were lying about all this stuff ahead of time mm -hmm. that someone finds out where, you know, under normal circumstances, most people would think like, okay, well, you know, a 23 year old guy yeah. lied to his parents about getting a good job or being like a good student, right. um, you know, not something to kill someone over. So that no, sort of raises not. the dangerousness, mm -hmm. um, you know, level of an individual when the judge is sort of like thinking about the risk if they get out of custody in the future or the necessary penalty that should happen for that type of conduct. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times judges are looking at, you know, is something, is there some explanation for something? Thing, not necessarily an excuse, but a reason for something. And in this case, if the state is right, you know, if they prove that these things happened for the reasons they say they did, um, it doesn't seem to be, you know, one of those cases. It's not an accident. It's not, um, you know, it's not something that people are going to mm -hmm. be able to relate to or understand, you know, a crime of passion or something like that. It, it seems really like an unnecessary crime if that if the state's able to prove that this is really what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and that really remains to be seen. So well, it will definitely be interesting what shakes out over the next couple of weeks. Um, collectively, we know both of the lawyers involved. We have nothing but respect for them. And it really will come down to the evidence that comes out. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys both so much for taking time out of your day to talk about this case. And we'll see what happens. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.